All right. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. I'm your host, Kane Sims, as always, and I am delighted to present our presenting sponsor today for VUX World. It is Deepgram. Uh, if you are in the world of conversational AI, voice AI, and you are looking for an automatic uh, speech transcriber, automatic speech recognition provider, then do check out uh, Deepgram. They do some amazing, uh, amazing work. They've got incredible deep learning technologies. Uh, their accuracy is is very, very good. Over ninety percent in in a lot of cases. Uh, they power uh, companies actually all over the world. They power applications, everything from meeting room transcriptions. They've actually just released uh, some new language models as well. So they now support French, French Canadian. Uh, we just having a conversation a moment ago about my uh, pathetic French uh, speaking, <laughs> uh, which we might get into or not. Uh, also, uh, increased support for Hindi and Spanish. The models have been updated to better support conversational AI applications. Uh, they've released uh, new models for uh, voicemails, uh, for um, earnings calls, a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of stuff. So whatever your transcription needs, I'm sure Deepgram can help you out. So check out deepgram.com forward slash VUX world if you are interested. That is deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. Okay, on with the show, where we're going to be talking about uh, designing enterprise-grade conversational applications. Our guest today, Celine Osika, is immensely experienced in the world of conversation design. There's there's uh, often job descriptions that get put out there. I know Ben McCulloch, who's a conversation designer, you may well be familiar with him, always complains and moans about the fact that jobs that advertise for conversation designers always ask for like seven years' experience. And there's very few conversation designers with seven years' experience. Because relatively speaking, as it's now become a well-known subset of UX design, I know there's been VUI designers for a long time over the decades, you know, John Bloom and Kathy Pearl and, and Lisa Folkston and that. But, um, but as far as its rise into popularity, it's relatively new. And so there's not actually that many people that have a tremendous amount of experience. Uh, but Celine does. Uh, Celine is a senior director of conversation design at 24-7 AI. And welcome to VUX World, Celine. You're part of Thank a rare breed. Yeah, great to be here. <laughs> it's nice to have you. It's nice to have you. So yeah, I was just we were just saying that um, that conversation design is almost seems like it's really kind of like emerging now as a you know serious design practice as i mentioned it's been it's existed for many many years you know go back to the early 90s and people were designing conversations for ivrs with very rudimentary technologies but now it seems like it's getting to the point where it's finding its feet as a serious design practice yeah it's true yeah i remember not that long ago maybe three or four years ago when we were posting positions and things like that we spent a good long time figuring out what do we call this thing you know because yeah buoy is too it's it's yeah the, the it's just it's not voice anymore right there's a lot of multimodal omni-channel practices so we didn't want to nail it down just with buoy um we played around with a lot of different titles we had interaction designer in there for a while and then yeah somewhere along the way we turned it into conversation i think conversational designer um and then yeah now it's kind of i think a standard now where it's, it is called conversation design so it's a lot easier uh, to get people now that they at least know what we're talking about <laughs> but still you're right the experience though is limited you know we can't get a lot of people that actually have experience in conversation design but have different um, skill sets from other areas. You know, we have 
um, a, a speech pathologist that converted into a conversation designer on our team. And there's lots of UX folks that have converted over. We had a video game designer on our team that convert, you know, so they all have the skill sets that can be conversation designers. But yeah, I mean, yeah, experience wise, it's you don't get a lot of people that have that experience for sure. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, what are your kind of your observations on the sort of talent pool as it stands at the moment? Obviously, we've got people who are now beginning to to be really enthusiastic and interested in conversation design. You mentioned a bunch of different roles that are coming into it. You know, I've I've met playwrights who now conversation mm-hmm. designers and all kinds of people who who kind of come into it. But there is a lot of UX designers also who are now kind of you know looking at conversation design, copywriters and UX writers and stuff like that who are, who are kind of getting into it. What's your sort of um, I suppose your opinion or your insights into the current state of talent in the conversation design space as far as availability, level of uh, talent, that kind of stuff. How would you describe the current, um, you know, availability, I suppose, of, of talent in conversation design at the minute? Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's kind of two parts to it. There's the part that's innate to the person, you know, like, you know, are they, do they have good um, writing skills, communication skills, right? Because you need to be able to communicate in order to build a bot that can communicate. So there's a lot of things that are kind of inherent in a person that I think are kind of mandatory for the role. And then there's lots of learned things on top of that, right? We have a lot of best practices that we can teach and learn, Um and even the technology that we use can teach that too, right? So a lot of those things, I think you can definitely adapt and grow. Um, but yeah, there is that kind of foundation that I think we look for that some people have and some people don't. Where then can they think logically through a flow? Can they think, um, you know, how do they actually have a, a conversation between two humans? Is it succinct and does it get to their point across and does it you know do they communicate well that way written and verbal so if they have those foundations and we kind of have some assessments that can kind of you know judge it as best we can right Mm -hmm. then i think yeah there's a lot of um i've seen a lot of promise there you got people that would never have thought that you know conversation design is a thing for them can easily be a conversation designer because they have those foundations and then we and we you know add those um, teachable things on top Whereas, you know, even some people that might have been conver- doing conversation design for a while, I sometimes find that they don't have those foundations. So <laughs> although they have a lot of the experience, you know, they still might struggle with some of those things. So, yeah, a lot of I think really the talent pool is so large because of that. If you don't look at just experience wise, you know, you have to have seven years experience. So I think you're right. It's impractical to really ask that these days. Um, but yeah, if you look for other things, I mean, the talent pool is really, really large because of uh, the those two components. Mm, interesting. That's a really good way of, of approaching it, to be fair, is, is thinking of it as there is talent and people with talent that would play very nicely into the conversation design role uh, and using that rather than saying, have you got 10 years of a conversation design experience? Because I think then you, you're right, because there is things that can be learned. There's things that you can put on top of good foundations. Right. Um, and we're learning all the time. I mean, I, I would say the best practices that we would have used a year ago are different now because mm-hmm. the technology is different and, you know, just the even user expectations are different. So our, our things that we might have learned a year or two ago and especially five years ago have definitely changed. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so it's you kind of all those best practices are definitely fluid. Interesting. Yeah, I suppose. And then you've got the the technology underneath it all that's changing pretty rapidly as well, isn't it? You know, and that then has an impact on 
on the design approach and things like that and you've got new tools as well that that come to market and stuff like that tools like voice flow unfortunately botmock now will not be available given that it was acquired mm-hmm. by walmart but mm-hmm. you know you see voice flow every second week release something new into the yeah. platform that changes yeah. the way that the, the the kind of way that you approach things you know Exactly. And Voice Flow is awesome. Yeah, they're nearby us as well. Yeah. And uh, Braden and the team there do awesome things. Yeah, they're just really making it accessible, right? Their whole mm-hmm. platform is just now anybody can be a, a conversation designer, at least practice with it and, and mm-hmm. you know, work on that. So, but yeah, I mean, the technology is enabling a lot of people and it's opening those doors for a lot of people that wouldn't have had that ability before, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's wicked. So, so how so you're obviously you're in a fairly senior position now at 24 7 ai you've got a lot of experience in hiring conversation designers finding the the kind of the the bedrock of talent that you can kind of build on top of i wonder if we can just dive back a little bit into your kind of experience because you you you, were you at you at 24 7 ai before it was 24 7 ai is that right sort of yeah so i i started with a really small startup i think when i came on board we had maybe 10 15 people we all kind of sat in a little room. <laughs> it was really, you know, one of those startup stories. Um, but then, yeah, so we grew the company. We started to get, you know, more enterprise ways. We started with more in the education space, and then we started to get more enterprise, like telcos and financial institutions. And we built up that company um, to be a pretty, a, a pretty big player in the the conversation design space. We were more made um, FAQ natural language bots, so they weren't super transactional but they were, um, you know, pr- more human-like, right? We would design them to still have human conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, we were acquired by 24-7, so I ended up staying there. Then we kind of expanded our portfolio. Now we do, you know, a lot of anything AI under the sun, really. We have um, uh, chat applications. We have uh, our whole bot suite. We have um, the ability to, we all have a lot of IVRs as well, too. So, yeah, it's just kind of everything a lot of the how the customer experience suite plays into things and how AI plays into those, that's kind of our strong suit of what we do at the mm-hmm. 24-7. And 24-7 AI even also has uh, live, like actual humans that do the, the, the chat escalation and stuff like that, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, that's kind of one of the claims to fame that we have is because we, we both, we have the tech side and we also have the operations side. And we learn a lot from the operations side. You know, we have direct access to the operations team, what their agents are going through, what works for them, what doesn't, what um, skill sets and tools they need to be able to do their job well. And then we can take those learnings and put them into the bot. So, you know, if they're doing repetitive tasks or things that, you know, they'll come to us and say, can you make the bot do this? Because, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. So we just launched, for example, for a, um, a U.S. telco a pretty large feature around um, the bot is authenticating the user before it passes to the agent. So there's no reason why an agent has to authenticate anybody because the bot can do it. It can can either detect the user is authenticated or it can ask the user to authenticate and then we can pass that information to the agent so then they understand, oh, I don't have to ask that. And they save time on the call. They don't have to struggle with the user. Uh, Security-wise, it's much better. So it's a whole bunch of applications where, you know, we can learn from the agent side of how we can make their job better. And they can, you know, learn from us, you know, in certain things. You know, if we have a flow that's working really well and some for some reason a user does escalate, they can take that user through that exact same uh, process using the same technology that we're using for the users too. So, yeah, there's definitely applications where having both sides is a benefit. Um, and from a customer perspective, you know, we're kind of end to end, right? They don't have to mm. worry about, 
you know, here's one piece of technology for the bot side, here's one piece of technology for the agent side, and for the chat side, it's kind of all one suite for them. Mm, yeah, and then you've also got the the kind of, rather than like, we'll need to give you some technology so that your agents can use this piece of technology, but then we'll design and develop the thing, so we'll use this piece of technology over here, and then we'll integrate that onto this front end, and then it all kind of gets a little bit uh, a little bit messy. And I can imagine that... that yeah a lot more companies i suppose it's, it is horses for courses but I, I imagine that there is a larger number of companies that just want to say look take it out of my hands <laughs> just do it exactly yeah we have we just started uh making a um an offering called the managed customer engagement for just that exactly so mm-hmm. if you don't want to do the design, the implementation, the testing of the tech, and you don't want to have, you know, your own agents and you don't want to train your own, you know, we can do yeah everything end to end as part of kind of, and it's just kind of one price for that, a cost per contact and that's about it. So, yeah, so that's, it's, um, we take a lot of the onus and the responsibility, the training, the risk on our side. And then, yeah, really it's just, we deliver that customer, you know, this is what you're going to get. This is what you pay, you know, this one price. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's worked out really well. A lot of companies have been interested in that. Mm, Interesting. And what about your role then? So are you and your team working with clients to to design the conversations or is your role more around helping the team that you have do the work? Like what, where, where does, what's the scope of your role? Where does it kind of start and end sort of thing? Yeah, I do a little bit of everything. I think, you know, I, I work, um, our team primarily works with, with clients directly um, and helping them, you know, either consulting them or building things for them, depending on how much hands-on they want to be. And then my role kind of, I span a little bit wider than that. I help, you know, potentially um, consult a client of even what solution they need at the beginning. So, you know, we just, we're talking about um, a medical company, um, that does COVID testing. So, you know, how can we help them automate the process when they're helping use their customers do the testing and audit the testing and things like that. So, you know, we're talking about scoping a solution and how we can make it work for them early. And then I help the team build the solutions, you know, I can either help the team with, um, you know, if they need help with a client meeting or something like that, I'll attend the client meeting. Sometimes I'll um, get involved in the client meetings just to kind of help implementation best practices and, and get things ensuring that we're meeting their KPIs and their goals. Um, and then we also do optimization as well too. So we also focus on after you're launching, what can we do afterward? How can mm-hmm. we even further increase, you know, to get you to where we need to get you. And then I also help um, similar to kind of what VoiceFlow does. We do something similar where we have, we have a lot of self-serve applications as well. So, um, for example, one of them is, is building the bot end-to-end. So we don't have to do it. A user could do it completely self-serve if they wanted to. Um, so helping the product team make those self-serve tools better and more efficient. So it helps us and helps our clients too. So I kind of go between, I guess, those four different functions. Mm, interesting. That is interesting. And you mentioned, I mean, you, you've obviously learned a hell of a lot over over the years, as we've kind of been mentioning. You mentioned there, though, that things now uh, have changed compared to five years ago, perhaps even changed from a year ago, two years ago. What are some of the kind of examples? I don't want to put you on the spot, but have you got any kind of like examples that you could think of, of things that you've noticed that have changed in conversation design over the last, say, 18 months or so? Yeah, there's... I guess two big ones. I mean, I'm sure there's lots, but the ones that are just recent for me are um, one examples on the messaging side, on the digital side, and one examples on the voice side. 
So on the messaging side, we used to just really design for the web and mobile, right? It was first for the web back in the day, and then mobile came into play and designing for mobile. And now we're designing for, for um, asynchronous channels uh, like Apple and Google, um, Facebook, things like that. So that's kind of changed the landscape of what a conversation designer has to do too. Because not now, not only do we need to know the best practices for web and mobile, we need to know the best practices for every one of those channels. And they're all different. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like Google has its own set of things and Apple has its own set of things. Like, for example, if you're selecting, you know, options, Apple had what they call the list picker. Google has chips. You know, so everybody has something they call different. And now mm. Apple's starting to, you know, expand and, and looking at chips as well. So now we have to say, OK, well, we designed for list pickers. Now let's design for chips and list pickers in <laughs> Apple. So it's just their technology is constantly advancing. So we have to constantly advance and understand what works, what doesn't, what are our limitations, what can we, like, what are the best practices of the design um, aspects in all of those channels. And then the key for our team is that we try to design once and deploy across many channels. So mm. we're trying to design one flow and then how can that flow uh, adapt its content to all those different channels as well. So it's, we have to kind of know how the adaptation works too. So it's, it, that's been a challenge for sure, but interesting because it, it helps gain user accessibility. We know lots of more users have the ability to now have these conversations where they weren't before um, just async is a good channel to use, but yeah, it's, it's to design for it's, it's challenging and tricky for sure. And our team is, is doing great to, uh, accommodate that as much as they can. Whereas I know a lot of companies more designed for just Apple or just mm. Google and they, they design different flows for all of them, but our goal is to design that one. So we don't have to, you know, keep up 10 different flows for all these different channels. So mm. yes, yeah, so that's one thing that's definitely changed in the last even two, two years, one to two years, um, is the presence of that. And then on the voice side, I would say it's just <laughs> there. Uh, we deal more in IVRs, right? So we don't design as much for um, Google and Alexa and things like that, though we could, it translates to that. Mm. But I mean, IVR is still prominent, you know, it's not really going away anytime soon. So, but our goal is to how to make that better um, and how to make it, I think users are now expecting IVR to work like an Alexa, for example. So they're so used to having Alexa in their homes, they talk to it, you know, using natural language, they use very, um, you know, the background noise before, you know, you might have gone into a, a separate room to have a conversation with the IVR. Now they're just, you know, in the middle of everything, they're on their phones, they're walking down the street. So how do you accommodate for the background noise and the natural language and the wanting to speak to it like a human, you know, while still, um, and then advancing the technology to be able to accommodate that too. So that's part of what our team focuses on is how can we take the 20 year old technology of an IVR and make it into a newer, uh, more relevant application that makes sense that users are expecting. So that's kind of yeah. a, a change in the last one to two years as well. Yeah. Interesting. And I suppose that, well, th there's two, I, th I suppose, knock-on effects that I could see straight away there. One is that, that you have a knock-on effect on your documentation and the artifacts that you produce because you're not just saying this thing. When, when we say this prompt, we've got X responses that we're listening for. You're then saying, actually, well, actually, in WhatsApp, this can't be very long, so it's going to be really short. Exactly. Uh, on, in the IVR, it's, it can be a bit longer. We can explain a little bit more. On WhatsApp, you might not get as many kind of like qualifying questions off the back of a prompt because it's easy enough to just re respond with one, two, or three, or yes, no, whatever. Whereas in the IVR, it's a lot more open-ended potentially and a lot more uh, natural language and stuff being used. So I suppose it, I wonder if you can speak to a little bit of if, what the knock-on effects are in terms of your 
the artifacts that you need to work with. You're, you're trying to design once and publish everywhere, but there must need to be some flexibility in the artifacts. It's very true. Yeah. I mean, the designing for the digital channels and then applying them to the Apple, Google, that's challenging. But then you, a bigger challenge, I would say definitely is designing for both digital and voice. Yeah, that's, it's, it's hard. So we always, I mean, use the concept of voice first, right? Anytime you're dealing with multimodal and things like that, we always try to say, you know, the voice one is the most, I, I, I well, I came from a digital background, but I, you know, I've confirmed it, but I think most people think that voice is most challenging only because you have, you don't have the uh, ability for visuals. You don't have the ability for, you know, those, like you said, the chips, like for example, you can't mm. read, you can't go back easily. So how can we design a really great voice experience? But then what we try to do is then supplement with the components, like the digital components. So for example, yeah, the response might be the same. If we design for voice and it sounds good on voice, and like you said, it works for the other channels as well, um, typically succinct and, you know, limit of, I think, 60 words. We try to keep our prompts to things like that. Mm. So if we can design well for voice and we can say, well, if the user comes in, let's say on a mobile device and let's say it's a hotel application and they want to book a room, we don't, at, you know, we could on the voice channel give like maybe the top three choices or the top three hotels, top three rooms, whatever we want to do. But now on digital, we can add and send them a card that allows them to see, you know, 20 rooms and they can scroll through, see pictures and then pick a room. So, but we don't want to rely on that for the users that don't have that ability or aren't eligible for that. So that's why we still do, do the voice first, but then if they're eligible, we can send them a card to make the experience better, to increase our containment. Um, but yeah, so it's, that's a challenge too, is how can you make these flows as, as similar as you can? They're never going to be a hundred percent. But the idea is, you know, how can we have the, as much overlap as we can to reduce effort, reduce cost, and increase user um, familiarity if they jump channels as well, too. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Because it's interesting that because I suppose on the digital channel, you, you've got a lot more guardrails because you're confined. You're basically, it's like a GUI, basically, isn't it? You're confined by what you see. <clears throat> you, could, you could ask it something that's not an option, you know, and, and, and go that way. But the vast majority of the time on a digital channel, you can provide options. You've got more flexibility as well because you've got more uh, well, capability, I suppose. You can send a carousel, you can send images, videos, mm-hmm. web links, stuff like that. So then you're in, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit of multimodal, but we'll maybe get into it a bit more later because I do want to come on to the, the other challenge on the voice side. But just while we're on this kind of like multimodal side of things for, for on the digital channel, because uh, I, I remember seeing it was recently actually I think this week Google released uh, for Google Assistant they released a, a vaccine booking capability in India mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that uh, and the whole thing is is tapped the, 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 it's Google Assistant on a mobile obviously in India the, the the by far and away the most popular internet enabled device and Google Assistant access device is mobile and the whole thing is a click. It's mm-hmm. it's where are you? Um, click. I'm here. Where do you want to go? Click. I want to go there. Where do you want to be at next? Click. What time? Click. And the whole thing is literally just a tap the way through. Now on Google Assistant, you have chips and you have those kind of things. Same thing with a chatbot. You have those kind of things. But this is the first time I've seen a conversational interface be purely not based on natural language at all. And so mm-hmm. where do you, where are your thoughts on where conversation design starts and ends? Because for me, that flow that Google Assistant has released isn't necessarily a conversational interface because you're tapping on options the whole time. There's no natural language involved. Um, But I can see how those features, coupled with some natural language, make the experience a lot more intuitive, a lot more interactive. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on where where that line is between what conversation design is and what UI design, or is it all just UI design? 
Yeah. So I would say the majority, especially initially when we're deploying for a lot of our clients, we design just in that way. So it's that we call it directed dialogue, you know, using the IVR term, but directed dialogue. But we also we always allow the natural language component to be there because that's a big jump. I mean, it's simpler to do just director dialogue for sure. But that's assuming that every interaction has a happy path. And that's not in my experience. You know, users are going to get stuck, have questions like, well, well, maybe can I go here instead of here, you know, for a vaccine clinic or something like that. Mm. So, you know, I think director dialogue will help you constrain and keep the users on the happy path as much as possible because you know too much ambiguity is not good either so having the options to kind of take them through a flow if the flow is pretty consistent but yeah i think limiting it to just that and not having not letting the user ask a question or you know even you know um you know starting maybe they didn't have that intent maybe they just have a question they don't want to book a vaccine maybe they just have a question before they even start booking so i think limiting that is it's going to create, you know, in that world, just you're going to have users that are not going to be able to use it because they still have questions and then they have to do more research before they go through it. So, yeah, so I like a balance of um, directed dialogue works in a lot of cases. Um, but ha- like you said, blending in the natural language is kind of, I, I think, almost mandatory mm-hmm. to have that ability to take a user fully through it and it- expand it to as many users as possible. Mm, interesting. Um, so, so you were saying about the developments over the last few years and what's changed and stuff like that. And we kind of got into on the digital side, the impact is is that that you have more options depending on the platform. That then causes additional complexities when it comes to your design work, your architecture, your artifacts, things like that. Um, on the voice side, a lot of what you were talking about was around background noise and stuff like that. So, how much of the your role and your team's role crosses into the technology side of things. So, for example, removing background noise, that kind of stuff uh, is stuff that needs to absolutely be factored into the design. Same thing with something like barging, for example. You know, if you want to allow barging for certain prompts, not for other prompts, definitely it's part of the design, but it's not necessarily something that a designer would actually implement. So how much of what you do on the voice side strays into the technology side, or is that where the relationships with developers and that kind of come into play? Yeah, it's definitely a partnership for sure. Um, I would say because of the self-serve technology that we're enabling, we, we are um, we are able to do a lot more of our own setting. For example, we just uh, um, had a feature that we can deploy and tweak the thresholds for confirmation ourselves. So we don't need a developer to do that. So, you know, if this and this, you know, do a passive, if this and this do an active confirmation. So it's kind of nice to have that ability to be able to do my own tweaking. Uh, it does mean, though, that, again, now designer is becoming more technical and needs to understand, you know, all these pieces and how all these things move around. But I, I like being able to do that rather than having to rely on a developer. Um, but, yeah, things like, you know, for example, if there, we're noticing um, on one of our IVRs, we noticed that there were some background noise issues. So some of those things our team can't troubleshoot and um determine we can repair we can design repairs for them as much as possible so our job is to make sure the user experience is good and you know the options are there if it does fail but in terms of yeah making it you know you know um that it can understand through background noise better we'll rely on yeah data sciences or developers to to work with us as a partnership so yeah so some things are independent but some things definitely we need a developer a data scientist to help us with to make it uh, more yeah, just a better user experience. Mm. And I know that you you kind of spoke a lot about uh, in the past on other other things that I've I've seen you speak at and things like that. And, and I know that the content that you contribute to and whatnot. 
the concept of personality design or persona design, I know there's been a bit of a debate around whether it should be called personality, whether it should be called persona, the role that it plays. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, I, I tend to use the word personality now. I think it's after reading um, conversations with things from Rebecca Evano mm-hmm. and Dina D. Well, I just call it personality and all that. But I'm a big fan of, of uh, creating a personality because I think it does give you some some foundational grounding for your dialogue. And obviously, if you're working with multiple people on a project, it helps everybody kind of get on the same page as far as uh, the dialogue's concerned. So but I'm just wondering what your kind of thoughts are on uh, how you use persona or personality design in your kind of work and the kind of role that it plays yeah it's interesting yeah i love her book and when we were talking when she was writing it we were kind of saying you know well i call it this what do you call it and you know she would have 10 different names for something that we all (laughs) so yeah we we all agreed that i think for right now it's such a new thing we all have different words for everything and we just have to kind of figure out you know what do you mean by entity and what do you mean by slot and what do you mean (laughs) and we're starting to standardize it but yeah i think we're getting there and i think maybe in 10 years we'll all be using the same terms but yeah so for right now yeah i've heard both persona personality i think yeah (laughs) 10 years we'll be using the same one five years even but anyway yeah so it's funny we did a um a panel discussion on because i I love the topic i think it's interesting because one of my passions is just how can we make these things more human? How can we, you know, which is scary, but also really cool. So I I love talking about it. But um, somebody said in that panel discussion that uh, you're not, you you can choose if you want to create a personality or not, but it already already has a personality, whether you want want it to or not. Hmm. So what you're doing is you're maybe tweaking what the personality existing is. So, you know, if you create something, it's going to either come across as really too friendly or too flat or too, you know, um, non-human like or too robotic or whatever. So even if you don't do anything, it's still going to have a personality. So I thought that Mm -hmm. was interesting. So, but what we like to do is, yeah, take that more into control rather than just letting, you know, fate decide what our personality is. So um, yeah, so it depends, right? Because we, on an enterprise level designer, we don't get a ton of flexibility. We can have some fun with it, but you know, these are, you know, we're dealing with airlines, we're dealing with banks and we're dealing with things like that. So you kind of have to, you can't have super, you know, a great, um, yeah, you can't have it be a crazy robot that will, you know, tell you off if you ask it a question, like Siri has like a, you know, she's very saucy. So, you know, can't do that as much. <laughs> so, um, but at the same time, you know, we can use it to our advantage. So when we had like COVID, for example, and people were calling into one of our financial institutions and needing to delay payment on their credit card, you know, it's something that we need to be empathetic and understanding and help them through it, right? And we want it, it to automate it as much as possible. If you don't do that, then they're not going to feel comfortable with talking to this thing and want to talk to a person instead. So it's not just about the wording. It's about how can we make them feel we understand what they're going through. We're, we're sorry. We're here to help. You know, we're here to, you know, delay, defer your payment for three months or whatever it is. We can tell them that. But how do we tell them it in a way that comforts them as well, too? So, again, you know, especially in the voice world, you know, we can tweak now using TTS. We can have an empathetic tone. We can also just the way we phrase the, the concepts and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's important to make sure you have that. And, and you know, the, the tone and the personality can switch depending on, um, lots of factors, you know, what vertical it is, what demographic you have, 
what even intent, you know, some intents are going to be more fun. Some intents are not going to be, you know, very, you have to keep them very serious. So you can play with personality depending on all those things, just as a human would, right? If you came to me and said, I need to defer my credit card payment, I'd be like, oh, shucks, too bad. You know, you would never say that to somebody because <laughs> that would, you know, so you just have to think of how you would speak to them in a human and then you kind of apply that to your bot technology too. Interesting. Do you think they'll become almost like a standardized personality in future? Because from my experience, over probably the last, I would say, three, four years or so, most of the projects I've worked on have ended up with almost kind of a very similar personality. Everybody wants kind of like, even government organizations I work with, they, they don't want the bot to be totally robotic and like computer says no, but yet they don't want it to be like, howdy partner, you know, how's mm-hmm. things today? Mm-hmm. They want it to be like a little bit humanish, like, you know, sense that there's that there's something there, but not too, not too robotic, you know, know when to be a little bit, not tongue in cheek necessarily, but know when to, to, you know, be a bit more playful versus know when to be more serious and straight down the middle again depending on the intent so if, i mean it seems to me that i don't know if it's just i don't know if it's just because of the project i've worked on but it all seems to me that there's, there's a, a, a bit of a trend emerging i suppose when it comes to the conversation you're gonna you're obviously gonna have brands like virgin for example that are very much based on personality or dominoes or whatever who's gonna really push the personality mm-hmm. to the edge then you're gonna have brands like um I don't know. I used government, but this was like a local government. I suppose maybe like a central centralized government or like a you know a pension organization or whatever who's probably going to play more down the sort of like serious sort of node. But by and large, do you think that there'll be a, a consensus, I suppose, or standardization of bot personalities, or or do you think that it's just completely dependent on the brand and it's it's different every time? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I said I get what you're saying, right? Because yeah, what we're being told by our clients is that exactly that, you know, can't you know we want to have some personality, but don't you know don't overdo it because then it gets too annoying. And I see that too from a user perspective. But I keep thinking I don't think so. I don't think it's going to be standardized because again, I think we're going to be able to. I think where it's going to go is you're going to have custom personalities depending on the variables. So for example, like one of the studies I read is that um, in order for uh, Uh, elderly individuals to feel more comfortable talking with chatbots, it has to be more emotional. Like they Mm -hmm. have to feel and have really heavy emotion in that conversation. Whereas talking to a millennial, I don't care. Like, don't, don't cope that. I don't need to be emotional. Just give me what I want. I just, I don't care. I know you're a bot and I don't need to talk to you. I have a whole bunch of other things. So I think for that thing, maybe they'll become standardized in the sense of different variables, you know, for this demographic, maybe make it more emotional for this vertical, for example, government or financial institutions, make it more professional pizza retail, you know, you can have more fun. So maybe standardize in that sense that each variable will have different types of personalities that we'll be able to invoke. But I think, yeah, I don't think it's going to be standard across every bot. I think they're all going to be different. Um, and then we'll be even be able to cut, because again, I'm thinking of when I, you know, I, the best experiences that I can think of is when, you know, when I'm talking to an agent or something like that is not the ones that read a script. It's not the ones that are super bland, um, but it's the ones that, you know, connect with me, say, you know, if I'm applying for a mortgage or something like that, and then they comment, oh, yeah, like I applied for, you know, something like that, too. And this is what happened to me. And it's like little anecdotes and stories and ways that can connect with them. So, you know, I think that's going to come into play where, you know, 
some users will want that and some users will not. And we'll have to learn and adapt to, you know, if they reacted negatively to something like that, then don't do that again. And what, like a human would if, you know, they wouldn't repeat the same type of chumminess if the chumminess wasn't well received. Right. So it's a, yeah, I don't even think humans have perfected personality anyway. So, <laughs> you know, we, we rub each other the wrong way all the time. So I don't think bots will ever get there until we can, but I think, yeah, they'll, they'll become more dynamic if anything. Interesting. That's very, it's, it's very good now. Cause, um, I remember when we spoke to, uh, Zohib Ahmed from resemble, obviously resemble create synthetic voices, TTS voices. And one of the things that he mentioned was that one of the call centers that they've been working with had created synthetic voices, not for, a, it wasn't a conversational IVR. It was just a, a, a simple kind of, um, recording for the IVR basically. And what they did is Excuse me, I keep needing to swallow because I've got a cold and I've got a fucking nose. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's okay. <laughs> so what they did is they, they uh, created synthetic voices for a whole bunch of different staff. So as when you call a call center and you get put through to somebody, you might get through to Dave or you might get through to Julie or you might get through to whoever and you're going to hear a different voice on the end of the line. They kind of had a similar approach mm-hmm. to their IVR, which I thought was a really interesting way of going about it. So it's kind of similar to what you were saying there around, like maybe the caller is younger, so you'd be a bit more playful. Maybe if the older, you'd be a bit more, uh, you know, speak a bit slower or whatever. <clears throat> um, what are your thoughts on on that kind of concept of sort of like in something like a voice environment where you have an actual voice, not just the words to play with about you know, should should a bot be a bot and every time you call, you speak to Dom or should a bot be this ephemeral concept of an agent that whenever you call, you get put through to somebody else different every time with a different voice and all that kind of stuff or are we just getting ahead of ourselves? Yeah, I mean, it does make it much more of a, a current environment though there's pros and cons with that, right? As a human, wouldn't I want, I think, when I want to talk to the same person all the time, it's just the, you know, the scalability nature of companies can't do that. You just, I can't talk to my friend Anna every time I call in because she has a life and she may not be available then. So that's why I think there's all multiple roles when you call into a call center. So emulating that, it would make it more consistent with how the world works, but I don't know if it's actually what humans want. I want somebody that knows me, that I can relate to, that I agree, you know, it's come, kind of comes my personal assistant, right, for that company, let's say. Um, the issue with that, though, is, as I've seen, is that as soon as that, and you know, we just are so hard on bots and, like, you know, cars and anything, right? As soon as that thing doesn't do what we want it to do, or my computer, for example, if it's, you know, restarts itself, I get so angry at it, and you would never do that to a human. So that that negative emotion, if you had the same person all the time, it's going to stick, and they'll never want to use it again. If they call it, they'll just, you know, zero out. Give me a real person. I hate this thing. It's so annoying. So the diversity, I think, in that case might help. It's, so if they had a negative reaction with person one, maybe person two, even though it's powered by the same technology, but person two might just feel better for them because it's a difference. So, yeah, I see pros and cons with doing that for sure. Um, maybe when the technology is great and that, you know, our personal assistant can adapt to us and our best friend and, you know, never rubs us the wrong way, then we can have it the same. But until then, yeah, having the diversity may not be a bad thing for sure. Interesting. Got a question from Richard Wozeka. I might have to read it because uh, it doesn't all fit on there, but shout out to Richard. Uh, Does introducing personality to a bot risk making it too human? Does adding a human kind of personality potentially confuse users into thinking the bot has other human characteristics like memory and the ability to switch contexts? 
Uh, it goes on to say, uh, which it clearly doesn't have, maybe character for the bot, like how a house might have a character might make sense. So does introducing a personality risk making it too human and over-inflating customer or user expectations? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say five years ago, we were hesitant to add a lot of personality because of that, right? Because you're right, it's as soon as you start to chum and, you know, tell a joke with the bot and things like that, then all of a sudden, yeah, the user thinks, oh, I can do lots of things that I would talk to a human about. So, yeah, so, but now I think like the things you mentioned, like memory, ability, switch context, we can do that today. So um, we can even switch, like we had an example for, um, uh, something for an airline. So if you go down the path of an airline, let's say you say, you know, oh yeah, can you rebook me on the 9 p.m. flight? And then you get a text from your friend and then your text, your friend says, oh no, I'm on the 3 p.m. flight. Then you can say, oh, oh, bot, can you, can you change me to 3 p.m.? Sorry, because my friend's on that flight. So it can do that now. So whereas, yeah, five years ago, no way. So you're right. I think the technology should come along with the personality. You can't just add a personality and think that this bot's going to be super smart. That's not where the intelligence, um, uh, per, how users perceive intelligence comes from. The, um, how they perceive intelligence comes from, yeah, can you understand me? Can you do a task that a human would do? Can you have that, like you said, the memory? So those things and, um, I think are more important to have. Personality is kind of icing on the cake to accomplish what you want to accomplish. But yeah, if you don't have those things, personality is not going to get you there. So I agree. Mm, interesting. That's very interesting. Um, how of the projects that you tend to work on, how many conversation designers tend to work on one uh, project? Yeah, it depends on how large the projects are, I would say. So we have a couple smaller projects that it's usually, yeah, one is, is just fine. And we usually partner, like we said before, with a data scientist and a developer, depending on, you know, how complex we have. If we have a lot of integration, uh, transactional stuff, APIs, things like that. So it's kind of a small team of like a developer, a DSG, per, uh, uh, a data science person, a conversation designer, and a QA, maybe, um, for, to, for the implementation team. Um, but yeah, so when you get into start to have bigger projects, especially ones that are um, spanning across multiple lines of business that have, you know, huge volumes that have um, just huge expectations or huge presence. And um, like we talked about many channels, if they have a voice channel and they have things like that channel, uh, the digital channels you mentioned. Yeah. So then in that case, you might be getting into definitely two or some of our projects even have three people on it. We'll have a um, more of a product owner role, we'll have more of a designer role, we'll have more of an optimization role, for example, for those bigger projects. So yeah, it depends on the size and what those clients are doing and how aggressive we're being with the timelines and things like that. But yeah, we have one client that um, we want to implement pretty much 20 journeys over the next couple months for them. So different intense and, you know, big, massive journeys. Um, so yeah, so for those kinds of things, one person may not be enough because then we have to maintain it while we're building these journeys too. So it can be a partnership for sure. Um, we have another project that one person's working on the voice flows. The other person's working on the digital flows, again, trying to make them as similar as possible and they're blending them together. So they work as partners. Um, but definitely, yeah, there is that because it's such a large project and has such small timelines. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So how, how, what are the sort of challenges then, I suppose, of having multiple designers in that instance, 
that you mentioned there. One person's doing the digital, one person's doing the voice. What's the kind of either the challenges that might arise in that as teams start maturing and, and there's more conversation designers working on a project? Or what are some of the kind of like, if not challenges, then uh, kind of like best practices for working in teams? Yeah. For one, I would say doing things together in a self-serve interface is better than doing things outside of that. So in Visio or in some other application, because yeah, those things can get out of sync so quickly. Um, but if you have like a self-serve application, like what we use or voice flow or something like that, so you can all kind of work together collaboratively. I think that's a big, a big um, need. Um, so you can kind of see, Oh, this person added this prompt here. Okay. I'll add, my voice version here, but it's using the same model, the same everything underneath. So it's it's reduction of effort. It means that you don't have to be on calls with each other at the same time. But yeah, there's challenges there too. For example, you know, um, how to divide up. So, you know, if you're both working on the same flow, that can get really tricky, right? So what part, who's going to design first? And, you know, what if you disagree about a concept and how are you going to work that out together as a team? Um, so that's a challenge for sure. Um, sometimes we do it where, you know, if we have like, for example, 20 journeys to deploy, you work on one, two, and three, I'll work on four five and six, and then we'll switch and then we'll, you know, work on each other's. So yeah, lots of ways to approach it, but, um, definitely there can be challenges, overlap, miscommunication, um, disagreements or, um, inconsistencies through them. But yeah, the best way to do, I think is if you have that self-serve interface, if you have a man, uh, process between them, open communication, you know, ideally in the same time zone, things like that, that it makes it better. Um, and another complication is, again, if even two or three designers are working on one project and then the client or a partner wants to come in, which we have all the time and help you, how do we, how do we make everything work together, right? So knowing that the client isn't doing this 24-7, how, meaning, you know, all the time, not our company, but um, how can we help the client manage that while also still making sure that the KPIs are met and things like that too. So then it becomes an education of best practices and kind of consulting as well with them. So yeah, the, the having other, other players in the mix can complicate it too. Mm, absolutely. I can imagine that. How do you approach like, it's related to that. It's either having other people in the mix or those disagreements because all of these things are around ensuring that the end result is of sufficient quality, isn't it? That, that whatever goes out to be accessed by an end user meets a certain standard and that we're confident with. So I'm wondering whether you can share some uh, tips and advice for people on the kind of quality assurance, quality control side, like any any things processes or whatever that you have that makes sure that whatever's created is of a sufficient sort of standard yeah so a couple of things we do we do um definitely peer reviews ux reviews ux critiques with our own team so having kind of a a base of designers you can go to to bounce ideas off of to say you know what it what worked for you is there any example so we definitely use our our team to be able to do that we also do you know initial kind of focus groups, user testing before, uh, usability testing before we go live, just to make sure, you know, we're on the right track. Sometimes you can't do that because of timelines and things like that. So um, another thing is if you have the ability to do A-B testing, love to do that. So if let's say person one wants to do it this way, person two wants to do it that way, deploy both and then pick the best one, right? And then, mm. so that's an easy way to do it through data. If you don't have any of those options, then what we like to do is, um, uh, and sometimes you don't because of technology or timelines, 
you can deploy it and then measure it afterward. So knowing that the bot may not be perfect that on the onset for the first couple of days, but if you're doing a regular optimization cadence every week, you'll easily see, oh, that's a drop off point. That's really, that flow is not working for whatever reason. So I'm going to listen to calls or I'm going to read the transcripts, figure out where users are having the most friction and then redesign that piece of it rather than, you know, spending all this time trying to figure out what users may or may not like before launch doing it with real data can always help. You just want to make sure it doesn't take too long to fix those things. It has to be a really iterative process and um, the user doesn't have expectations that are set too high when you first launch, you know, calling it a soft launch, calling it, you know, hey, you're the first beta tester to try our new bot or something like that may help a user not be, um, have that negative connotation with it. But other than that, yeah, we kind of use all of those strategies depending on what the situation is. Mm, interesting. And what about kind of like, so if, if you if you think about um, like design, normal, let's call it graphic design, you would have uh, a graphic designer, like I've worked in agencies in the past where like everyone who does the graphic design is all kind of round on these computers doing their work and they know that the brand they're working on uses a certain color palette. They know that the brand they're working on has a certain logo that brand guidelines dictate that it needs to be in a certain position or whatever it might be. But then beyond that, there's almost like different designers have different ways of doing things, don't they? So one designer might have a certain style or you know a certain methodology that they go through and that produces a, an end result that is a, that is on, on brief, but it's kind of like if you were to, if you were to put like three designed I don't know, posters in a row and three designers who've designed them. If you know those designers well, you might be able to spot them. A little bit like if you were to find, like, let's take three songs. And if you're really into music, like, let's say, for example, for those who are hip-hop fans out there, if you take three songs, those that are schooled (laughs) in (laughs) hip-hop will be able to tell a Dr. Dre beat from a DJ Premier beat because of the style that they have. They're both beats. They both do the job. But they, but there's a style about them, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering from your experience of working with teams and teams of conversation designers, whether there is the same thing that is apparent in conversation designers, where individuals have their own kind of ways of doing things, their own little style and stamp, or whether it's more of a 24/7 AI has a practice and a, and best practice guidelines, and this is how the the company does things, and everybody uses that. Is it kind of like do you see what I'm trying to get at? Is it is it kind of like a framework and guidelines and best practice at that the high level and everybody is is in line with that, or is it kind of we're all conversation designers, we all know what we're doing, we all kind of get on with it, and we might have our own kind of uh, you know bits of I don't know what to call it uh, intricacies or nuances between different designers, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think there's uh, kind of a blend of both. So, for example. Um, we'll take, you know, a client's brand and the client's persona and apply it to, so that I think can change definitely how we word things and the prompts and the design there, but it always has the designer, you know, inflection, a little bit of the designer in those prompts, right? If, if we have a very uh, person that tends to be a little more, more verbose, the prompts will be tend to be more verbose or succinct. We'll see that succinct. So I think, yeah, your personality will always go a little bit in those bots, even though you don't um, mean it to be. But yeah, those um, the the company will set and I think control most of that because um, they pretty much have to approve everything. So that's another mm-hmm. thing with enterprise. You know, you're kind of at the whim of the clients and what they'll be okay with. But at the other side, um, there's a lot of best practices we know work. Like so, for example, 
if we are um, escalating. So let's say a user uh, asks a question, doesn't have the right answer. Um, the bot doesn't know. For example, there's a couple of choices you can do, right? Do you just hand them over to an agent saying, let me get you somebody right away, hand over. Do you make them try again? Or do you maybe um, uh, ask them, do you want to talk to somebody or keep asking questions, right? There's lots of different choices. Mm -hmm. So for those things, we know what works. So usually at the, that case, we'll actually recommend uh, to a company saying, we really recommend in this case, we typically want to go in the middle, the last approach where you ask. So we're not going to make the user try again because usually it doesn't work. We're not going to automatically send them to an agent because that's a bad UX too. But we'll typically say, sorry, you know, whatever. Um, I, in order to help you with that, I can get you an agent. Would you like to talk to someone now or later? So that best practice we know works. So we'll convince the client to say, you know, because we've done so many different implementations, this gets you the best containment, also the best user experience. Let's go with this method. So mm -hmm. kind of a blend of all three client best practices, user best practice or uh, designer best practices. And then also our team has its own set of best practices that we know work too. Interesting. That's good. That's nice. It's a nice kind of trifecta of allowing individuals to have their own kind of autonomy and creativity whilst at the same time maintaining a degree of consistency that is reflective of the brand, which is which is sound. Um, mm -hmm. one final, I know we're overrunning slightly. One final question around where do you see the future of conversation design heading like in, in th two years three years five years however time frame you want to put on it what do you think the job of a conversation designer will be in future yeah it's uh it depends on how the technology goes for sure but just the way that technology has been advancing i think there um will have a it will be a little bit more automatic i think the technology will be able to be a little bit more you know um, suggestive of saying, do you want to say this? Should I say this? You know, come more with things on the table. So we as designers don't have to dig and find all the answers and design the flow from scratch, right? So we can do a lot of machine learning based on past transcripts and things like that, where maybe kind of presents a designer with a flow that says, hey, based on past conversations, this flow tends to work. Do you agree? But just like with any right now, <laughs> any machine learning it, some things are like, wow, you're really smart. Other things are like, where did you get that from? Like, that does not make sense at all. So I think we'll still be involved, but more of a um, overseer, I think, than, you know, actually manually doing everything. So I think you'll still always need a kind of a person to kind of check the box or say, yep, that's good. No, that's not good. Or again, listen with a human ear to perfect things. So maybe a bot will be able to build itself, but then our job will be actually listening and doing kind of that quality assurance to see this is not a good experience. We need to revise this experience. So yeah, so I think humans will never go away, but I think we can make it easier for designers so we can scale and do a lot more things than just, you know, spending hours and hours on one journey, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Interesting. Wicked. Well, Celine, this was absolutely unbelievable. I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, uh, well, thank been, you for inviting me. It's been great. Yeah, you have great questions. It's been quality. It's been quality. I feel I feel as though we left a bit on the table. We should do this again sometime. I know that yes. you're, uh, you're going to be off for a while, but uh, maybe he's, uh, maybe he's at some point in 2022, we can, uh, we can do it again. That'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds nice. good. Appreciate it. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, if you haven't yet subscribed to VUX World, please do so. VUX.world forward slash subscribe. I've also got a LinkedIn newsletter, which uh, I don't know if you are familiar with or not. There's a few thousand people on there now, which is quite good. So if you are not yet subscribed to that yet also, do so. Uh, I would put the link in here, but LinkedIn doesn't generate very pretty URLs. And so <laughs> it probably wouldn't fit on this screen. But just go to my profile and uh, you'll probably find it there. Uh, next week, we are talking to Jan Sedevi, who is the, uh, he runs the Czech University 
uh, undergraduate uh, group of students working on computer science, and they recently won the Alexa Conversations uh, Challenge, the Alexa Challenge around uh, social social bot, I think it's called, uh, where they designed a bot that can have a conversation for 20 minutes. So if you want to learn about that, please do join us next week. Thank you all again for tuning in. Celine, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Soon. Yeah, nice chatting with you. Cheers. Bye. Bye now.